like show business, like no business I know. Everything about it is appealing. Everything the traffic will allow. Nowhere could you get that happy feeling when you are stealing that extra bow. There's no people like show people. They smile when they are low. Yesterday they told you you would not go far. That night you open and there you are. Next day on your dressing room they hung a star. Let's go. Costumes, the scenery, the makeup, the props, the audience that lifts you when you're down, the headaches, the heartaches, the backaches, the flops, the sheriff who escorts you out of town, the opening when your heart beats like a drum, the closing when the customers don't come. word before the show has started that your favorite uncle died at dawn and top of that your pa and ma have parted you're broken hearted but you go on there's no people like show people they smile when they are low even with a turkey that you know has fold you may be stranded out in Change it for a sack of gold. Let's go on with our show. Let's go on with our show. Ethel Merman there singing the song that became her calling card. There's no business like show business from Irving Berlin's Annie Get Your Gun in this 1972 recording. A very good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and a very warm welcome to Great Interpreters and to the first program in a new eight-part series, Great Interpreters Goes Broadway, dedicated to the great women of musical theatre. My name is Adrian Fuchs, and over the course of the next eight weeks, I look forward to taking you across the footlights and along the Great White Way, from Broadway to London's West End and via Hollywood, as we celebrate the Broadway babies, broads and belters that have lit up the stage and screen. We start our journey tonight with perhaps the most iconic of Broadway stars, Ethel Merman, and continue every Friday evening at 8pm through June and July with a different leading lady. Next week we pay tribute to Mary Martin, and this will be followed in coming weeks by programs on Elaine Stritch, Angela Lansbury, Julie Andrews, Bernadette Peters, Elaine Page, and finally on Friday, July 24th, Patti Lupone. Some of you might wonder, where's Gwen Verdon, Carol Channing, or Chita Rivera? And so a few words on the selection of the artists documented in the series. While I've tried to select those artists that by general consensus have been acclaimed as the greatest leading ladies of the musical theatre stage, 
some noteworthy grand dames, such as those aforementioned, as well as other artists such as Barbara Cook, Marnie Nixon, Betty Buckley, Bibi Newworth, and Audra MacDonald, unfortunately, had to be left out. With only eight programs and one artist per program, it was a tough call as to who to include and who not. In choosing between artists, I had to consider the longevity and impact of each artist's career on the stage versus a wealth of output on the silver screen or concert stage. Some artists, such as Liza Minnelli or Barbara Streisand, for example, had short stints on the boards, though Broadway has featured prominently in their recorded output and oftentimes has been inextricably linked with them in the public eye, not least because of highly successful films such as Cabaret, Funny Girl and Hello Dolly. Some of you may also wonder why no male artists were included as part of the series. The reason for this is simple. The archetypal Broadway star is a woman, and as Adam Feltman and David Cote note, it is the great ladies of the stage that continue to dominate the mythology of the genre. As in the world of opera, show-tune aficionados have continuously argued over the merits of their favorite leading ladies. Back in the day, it was Merman versus Martin. Today, one might find similar divisions among partisans of Patti Lupone and Bernadette Peters. Ben Rimmelauer furthermore noted, Let's face it, Broadway can be a woman's world. As in opera, which ain't over till the fat lady sings, in musical theatre, the sun often rises and sets on the leading ladies, even if it is the baritone who sings about the beautiful morning. So apologies to Fred Astaire, Joel Grey, Mandy Patinkin and Nathan Lane to name just a few of Broadway's leading men. This series is all about the dames. If you enjoy tonight's program, or if you miss any of the other programs in the series, a reminder that you can listen to tonight's show from my website On and Off the Record, www.onandofftherecord.com. That web address again www.onandofftherecord.com Since I live in New York City, and because this program is therefore pre-recorded, I am unfortunately unable to take any calls in the Fine Music Radio studio. But please do send me any feedback or comments that you might have via email at adrian at onandofftherecord.com or leave me a message on the On and Off the Record Facebook page. So, curtain up, light the lights, let's go on with the show. No other performer embodies the spirit of the great white way more than the subject of our first program, Ethel Merman, the stenographer from Queens in New York who became arguably the most enduring star in the history of Broadway. After skyrocketing to fame in 1930, singing I Got Rhythm in the Gershwin musical Girl Crazy, Merman became the darling of such master songwriters as George Gershwin, Irving Berlin, Cole Porter and Jules Stein. During her career, which spanned more than 50 years, she starred in leading roles in a whopping 13 original musicals, nearly all of them hits. Among the iconic roles she created were Reno Sweeney in Anything Goes, Annie Oakley in Annie Get Your Gun, and Mama Rose in Gypsy. During the early days of Broadway, singers were not amplified as they are today. 
Merman's trademark megaphone-like brassy voice was therefore a huge boon to composers and lyricists of the day. But it wasn't only the fact that she could be clearly heard even in the far reaches of the balcony that made her a unique and unparalleled artist. It was also her ability to hit every note on the mark, hold it as long as needed, deliver lines with shrewd comic timing and make every syllable distinct. And while her voice was never aesthetically pleasing in the traditional sense, nor her performances the most nuanced or expressive, that would be missing the point of Ethel Merman. As Adam Feltman points out, Merman's wailing siren volume and down-to-earth verve made her a paragon of bumptious urban energy. Her robustness helped power the emergence of the Broadway musical genre itself. There's no business like show business, she famously sang, and when she sang, there was no point arguing. A voice like that comes along just once, and it echoes down Broadway to this very day. I had a dream, a dream about you, baby. It's gonna come true, baby. They think that we're through, but baby... All you need is a hand We 
the unmistakable powerhouse voice that was Ethel Merman singing Everything's Coming Up Roses from the musical Gypsy, with music by Jules Stein and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim. Ethel Agnes Zimmerman was born in Astoria, Queens on January 16, 1908. She would later declare that it was actually 1912, the only child of Edward Zimmerman, an accountant, and Agnes Zimmerman, a schoolteacher. Merman's love of singing was evident from an early age. After school, she frequented the local music store to peruse the weekly arrivals of new sheet music and often emulated the singing styles of performers such as Fanny Bryce, Sophie Tucker and Nora Bays, which she heard during the vaudeville shows at the Palace Theatre that the Zimmerman family often attended on Friday evenings. Here is an extract from an interview with Merman, conducted by Jean Chalet from 1983. Do you really remember the first time you ever sang in public? Oh yeah, I used to sing uh, in Astoria. Uh, uh, my father and my mother were uh, members of the Republican Club in Astoria. <laughs> Big deal. And uh, when they had any function or anything, you know, they'd say, but they put me on, my father would play for me. And they'd say, watch this little Zimmerman girl, you know, because my name is Zimmerman with the, the cut off the Z-I-M and cut off one N and kept M-E-R-M-A-N. That's a coin name. That's not really my name. Yeah, I sure I remember. And I got confidence in myself. I wasn't scared. I really had a lot of guts, Gene. I did. Did your voice have the quality that it has now? I mean, is that absolute discernible merman sound it was, was it there when you were it was kid? loud and it and 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 and, and it was understandable the, the diction was good that's an, another quote by irving berlin he said i i couldn't write a bad lyric for ethel because they'd hear it in the second balcony you you're know? not a mumbler no and i can't stand that i wonder, wonder why people do that Despite her musical aspirations, Ethel's parents did not see show business as a reliable career choice, especially for a woman, and insisted that she get a solid education with thorough training in secretarial skills after graduating from high school, a safe fallback option in case her dreams of stardom didn't pan out. She landed a job as a stenographer to a local industrialist and factory owner, earning a respectable $28 a week salary. Her employer happened to have a few friends in the theater, and he introduced Merman to a Broadway producer who offered her a job in the chorus. Merman, however, promptly turned down the offer. She was determined to be a leading star, not a chorus girl. In the evenings, Merman started singing at private parties, nightclubs, and movie theaters around the city, and it was about this time that she abbreviated her last name from Zimmerman to Merman, so that it would fit more easily into newspaper ads and theater marquees. During a two-week engagement at a club in Midtown Manhattan called Little Russia, Merman caught the attention of an agent, Lou Irwin, who offered her a six-month contract to sing for Warner Brothers, but this did not result in the exposure Merman had hoped for. In 1930, Barely 21 years old, Merman was performing songs between film screenings at the Brooklyn Paramount Theatre. Broadway producer Vinton Friedley caught her act 
and was so impressed that he persuaded her to audition for the role of cafe singer Kate Fothergill in the new George and Ira Gershwin musical Girl Crazy. Upon hearing her sing, the Gershwins immediately cast her. One of my prized possessions, I don't have it with me, but it's put away in New York. Uh, I have a wonderful photograph of George Gershwin, uh, which he gave me uh, seated at his piano. This is when I, after I opened in Girl Crazy, and on the bottom of it, he wrote uh, to Ethel Merman, uh, a lucky composer is he who has you singing his songs. All the best, George Gershwin. Then over here on the left side, he's got uh, a few bars of uh, I Got Rhythm. I Got and Rhythm. And, of course, that's one thing that I'll cherish. What's your, what's your memory of Gershwin when you first Wonderf- met him? Oh, uh, I, I was... Uh, that's one time in my life I was scared. And, uh, but after I had been in his company for about five minutes, I, uh, I felt as if I'd known him all my life. He, uh, he was a, a, a very gentle man. He... Uh, uh, this goes back to uh, 1930 uh, when they were casting for Girl Crazy and they had signed Ginger Rogers and I was working at the Brooklyn Paramount which was a, a presentation house, a motion picture house and I was doing five and six shows a day and, and Vinton Friedley, who was uh, the producer of Girl Crazy had heard about this girl singer at the Brooklyn Paramount and came over and I guess liked me and thought I might be a possibility for Girl Crazy and he contacted my agent. And then uh, I remember it so well. Between shows, I was taken up to George Gershwin's apartment, my agent, Mr. Friedley, and I. And George Gershwin played I Got Rhythm for me. And he played Sam and Delilah. And he played Boy, What Love Has Done to Me. And this great genius said, if there's particularly about I Got Rhythm, he said, if there's anything about this song, Miss Merman, that you don't like, I'll be happy to change it. He and here, he you. was the great yeah. Gershwin saying yeah. this to me, and I was nobody yeah. at that time. Well, no one found, even heard of me. Apparently you know. he'd found his interpreter for these songs. And that clip was taken from a 1961 interview with Merman conducted by Studs Terkel. With Girl Crazy in rehearsal, Merman filled in the time by making her debut at the Palace, at that time the mecca of vaudeville. Outstanding reviews provided the first hint that a new star was being born, but nothing could have prepared critics and audiences for the opening night of Girl Crazy, when toward the end of the first act, the newcomer to Broadway delivered an extraordinary rendition of I Got Rhythm, a performance that brought down the house and left the audience demanding multiple encores. Merman stopped the show. As the curtain came down, Gershwin rushed backstage and pleaded with her, Don't let anyone ever give you a singing lesson. It'll ruin you. Merman followed the great composer's advice. No one ever did. Some years later, Merman, by now an established star, recalled that night saying, In the second chorus of I Got Rhythm, I held a high C note for 16 bars while the orchestra played the melodic line, a big tooty thing. By the time I'd held that note for four bars, the audience was applauding. They applauded through the whole chorus and I did several encores. It seemed to do something to them, not because it was sweet or beautiful, but because it was exciting. Few people have the ability to project a big note and hold it. It's not just a matter of breath, it's a matter of power in the diaphragm. 
I'd never trained my diaphragm, but I must have a strong one. When I finished that song, a star had been born. Me. Here is Merman in an interview with Gene Shalit from 1983. What was the name of the show that first burst you to fame? Go Crazy. What year was that? 1930, October 14th, 1930, we opened. And Miss Ginger Rogers was the star of the show. I was just a featured player in the show. They needed someone to sing songs like, I'm throwing titles away, I Got Rhythm, <laughs> and Sam and Delilah, and Boy What Love Has Done to Me, and uh, and that was it. It was like a like a media overnight, you know. I was nobody one day, and and the next day I was on the boards, as they say. You opened in that show, nobody had ever heard you. No. Did you sing I've Got Rhythm in the first act? Yes. What happened at intermission? Well, I remember so well. Uh, I dressed up on the fifth or sixth floor then of the Alvin Theater, took the elevator up, and George Gershwin came up to my room. At intermission? intermission. He said, do you realize what's happened to you, Ethel? Do you realize? And I, and I was busy, you know, putting on all the eye makeup, and I mean, what I didn't wear, I carried in those days, you know. And I was putting on more eyeshadow. I said, George, George, George. He said, but Ethel, you know, and, and uh, I don't know. I never, I didn't go to Sardi's or I didn't know from anything like that. I, I, I mean, to, to read the notices or anything. But the next day, which is very strange, the next day, uh, George Gershon was having a luncheon at his apartment. And I trekked over from Astoria, Long Island, where I was living with my parents, where I was born, as a matter of fact. And I got there, and he showed me the paper. He said, look at this, read this. And that, that was the first time that I ever read the rave notices, was at George Gershman's house the next day at 12.30, noon. That's true. Look at what I... 
Ethel Merman there in a live performance of I Got Rhythm from the musical Girl Crazy, with music by George Gershwin and lyrics by Ira Gershwin, recorded in 1931. Following her success in Girl Crazy, Merman appeared in a number of films, including 1934's We're Not Dressing with Bing Crosby. But it was soon clear that film studios had no clue what to do with her unique talents. 1934 saw Merman's next Broadway hit, and what a hit that was. Anything Goes, the first of five musicals by Cole Porter that would star Merman. Porter's glorious score featured one hit after another, and Merman, as evangelist-turned-nightclub singer Reno Sweeney, got to introduce such classics as the title song Anything Goes, Blow Gabriel Blow, and I Get a Kick Out of You. Here is Merman talking about Anything Goes and about Cole Porter in a 1983 interview with Gene Shalit. In 1934, you had a show by Cole Porter on Broadway called Anything Goes. Yes. It had one of the most colossal scores that yes. any star ever was handed, right? I think right? one of the best scores that Cole ever wrote. I get a kick out of you, you're the top, Anything Goes, and Blow Gabriel Blow, all in one show. Yeah. That's really phenomenal. Yeah. And uh, of course, the thing that I did all through the night and stuff, like beautiful songs. Lovely. Tell me about Cole Porter. Well, Cole was the great, great sort of sophisticate. You know, he was, uh, he was part of the jet set, you know, and um, parties, 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 and uh, cafe society, as you could say, you know. And. Uh, Unfortunately, when we were in Anything Goes, and I was in Anything Goes, he had that accident. He fell off a horse, or a horse threw him, and uh, his leg was not broken. Uh, the bones in his leg were crushed, and then he should have had it really amputated long before he did. But uh, then, years later, he had the amputation, and he lived at the Waldorf Towers, and I'm I'm lucky enough to say that uh, the last year of his life, I think I was one of the few people whom he invited up there to dinner at the Waldorf Towers. And in the library, he had a couch. He was so sensitive about the leg, and it was a very deep couch. In other words, it went way out to there. So he could sit on the couch, and his two legs would be straight out so that his, uh, the, uh, his bad leg would not be obvious, you know. And I think I was the only one that sat on the couch with him. I used to go there and I used to put my legs out too and sit there with him. And, and uh, he was wonderful. He's pity. He's gone. And in the midst of all this pain and hardship, he wrote these most dazzling, funny, exuberant songs. Very few really sad songs the man wrote. Right. Most of it was all upbeat. Up, up, up. yeah, up. Yeah. Because he also had you to write for. Somebody's going to write, you're the top, or Blow Gabriel Blow. He's got to have an instrument like Ethel Merman to perform that song. Yeah. Well, after the, after the first show, you know, and then he got to know me. And then he would, you know, find these little tricks here and there, you know. It's, it's I was trying to think who else in the world can even sing Blow Gabriel Blow except Ethel Merman. I mean, that is one tough song. Isn't that, yeah, yeah. When A few years ago, you came back to Broadway with uh, Ethel Merman? I think it was maybe only for one night with uh, Mary, Mary Martin. Martin. A few years ago, you and Mary Martin did a one-night benefit. 
was wonderful. And you came out and sang Blow, Gabriel Blow, and you absolutely tore that. I mean, yeah. it's, it's such a cliche to say she brought the house down. But the, 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 the house was crazy. The solo trumpet. Absolutely. Imitating the trumpet. See, but Cole Porter's got to know that you're capable of singing that song. Most people would not right. know they what to do with the song. Right. They, can't, they can't do that. It's true. Let's listen now to Merman singing the wonderful Blow, Gabriel Blow from Anything Goes. Yes, we hear that playing. Do you know who's playing? No, who is that playing? Why, it's Gabriel, Gabriel playing, Gabriel, Gabriel saying, Will you be ready to go when I blow my heart? Blow, Gabriel, blow. Go on and blow, Gabriel, blow. I was a sinner, I was a scamp, but now I'm willing to trim my lamp. So Goes opened on November 21st, 1934 on Broadway at the Elvin Theatre, and the New York Post called Merman vivacious and ingratiating in her comedy moments and the embodiment of poise and technical adroitness when singing as only she knows how to do. Despite rave reviews for her performance, Merman was initially overlooked for the film version of Anything Goes. Bing Crosby insisted that his wife Dixie Lee be cast as Reno Sweeney opposite his Billy Crocker. But when Lee unexpectedly dropped out of the project, Merman was cast in the role she had originated on stage. Sadly, the watered-down 1936 film adaptation of Anything Goes tossed out most of the original score and cleaned up the remaining Porter lyrics. As John Kenrick noted, the larger-than-life talents that made Merman a favorite on stage did not have the same effect on the big screen, and while her youthful energy was appealing, she didn't have the glamorous looks Hollywood expected 
in a leading lady. Here is Merman singing I Get a Kick Out of You from Cole Porter's Anything Goes. My story is much too sad to be told But practically everything leaves me totally cold The only exception I know is the case When I'm out on a quiet spree Fighting vainly the old ennui followed Anything Goes with a trio of Cole Porter musicals. Red, Hot and Blue in 1936, Dubarry Was a Lady in 1939, and in 1940, Panama Hattie. As her career moved along with surefire success, Merman's personal life followed a somewhat rockier path. Shortly after the opening of Panama Hattie, Merman, still despondent about the end of her scandalous affair with Sherman Billingsley, married her first husband, William Smith. 
She later said she knew on their wedding night that she had made a dreadful mistake, and two months later she filed for divorce on the grounds of desertion. It was not long thereafter, however, that she met and married newspaper executive Robert Levitt, with whom she would go on to have two children, Bobby and Ethel. Levitt found it hard dealing with Merman's success. He was often referred to as Mr. Merman, and the couple divorced in 1952 because of his excessive drinking and erratic behavior. Several years later, Levitt took his own life, leaving Merman to raise the children on her own. 1943 saw Merman starring in her fifth and final Porter musical, Something for the Boys. Change, however, was in the air. Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein II's Oklahoma had revolutionized the conception and direction of the American musical. The mindless musical comedies of the 1930s were a thing of the past and were being eclipsed by shows that integrated story, music and dance in an unprecedented way. One such show was a musical based on the life of famed Wild West sharpshooter Annie Oakley, conceived as a vehicle for Merman by Dorothy Fields, a close friend. Jerome Kern was enlisted to compose the score, but in November of 1945 he suffered a stroke and sadly passed away a few days later. The show's producers, none other than Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein II, then persuaded Irving Berlin to step in as composer and lyricist. The result was Annie Get Your Gun, which opened on May 16, 1946 at the Imperial Theatre, a 1,147 performance box office blockbuster and the longest-running show that Ethel Merman or Irving Berlin would ever be associated with. During that extraordinary run, Merman remarkably took only two vacations and missed only two performances because of illness. Well, take a score like Andy Get Your Gun. 1946. Right. Irving Berlin. Now listen to this, ladies and gentlemen. Doing what comes naturally. You can't get a man with a gun. There's no business like show business, which has become the anthem this of the is, entire industry. It's my anthem, yes. I think. They say it's wonderful. I'm an Indian, too. Lost in his arms. I got the sun in the morning, old-fashioned wedding, and anything you, you can, can do. You can do. I can do I better. I mean, look at that. Now, I think that's the best score that Irving ever wrote. I really do. Well, there's not a lemon in there. No, nothing. That, that's what makes me so mad. When you go to the theater these days, I can't come out singing anything, humming anything. You say, where's the melody? Where, where are the lyrics, really? The bands are so loud in the pit, over-orchestrated. Everybody's mic'd? Everybody, but the, the, the performer doesn't have a chance. I mean, the orchestrations are so heavy. I want to hear Ethel Merman talk about the Irving Berlin that she knows. Irving is in his 90s. He's going to be 95 in May. Yes. And he, well, he, see, he was just the opposite of Cole. As I said before, Cole was the great sophisticate. And uh, Irving was, oh, played everything low-key. You know, he had a quiet life, quiet home life. He didn't attend the, the great parties that went on in the Elza Maxwell days and and things like that, you know. He's always been like that, always. Reclusive. Yes, yes, yes. And now, of course, I understand he's just confines himself 
to his house and he doesn't talks on the phone he talks on the phone every once in a while he'll call me if I he has me do show business you know he'll call up and he'll say that was great Ethel yeah then we have two true opposites Cole Porter the sophisticate Ivy League and Yale Irving Berlin the Jewish immigrant from the Russia waiter. <laughs> the waiter the waiter right? <laughs> down on the Lower East Side yeah from two totally different worlds and yet somehow they converge on yeah. Broadway through you and have this historic, glorious two decades of Broadway yeah. music. Well, you know, it goes back to the old saying, Gene, that you're only as good as your material. And they gave me great material to sing, and of course, I, well, I pat myself on the back. I had the talent to sing it, but the chemistry of the two was great, you know? Did those people ever have a feeling of envy for one another? I don't think so. Did Cole Porter ever talk big. about Berlin or Berlin no, talk about Gershwin? No, they're too big. They're too big. Like, for instance, sometimes I'm questioned, uh, who, was your who was your favorite composer? And I say, uh, I don't have a favorite composer because they were all so on a par with each other that it would be unfair to differentiate between any of them. But I do say that, I mean, I have to give credit to George Gershwin, uh, like I say in concert, for putting me on the map mm -hmm. with I Got Rhythm. That's the song that really got me started. But you know, like I say, what is your favorite song? I don't have a favorite song. They were all good. Ethel Merman there in an interview with Gene Shalit from 1983. Here now is Doing What Comes Naturally from Irving Berlin's Annie Get Your Gun. Folks are dumb where I come from They ain't had any learning Still they're happy as can be Doing what comes naturally Doing what comes naturally Folks like us could never fuss With schools and books and learning Still we've gone from A to Z Doing what comes naturally Doing what comes naturally You don't have to know how to read or write When you're out with a feller in the pale moonlight You don't have to look in a book to find What he thinks of the moon or what is on his mind That comes naturally That comes naturally My uncle out in Texas Can't even write his name He signs his checks with X's But they cash him just the same If you saw my pa and ma You'd know they had no learning Still they raised a family Doing what comes naturally Doing what comes naturally Uncle Jed has never read A almanac on drinking Still he's always on a spree Doing what comes naturally Doing what comes naturally Sister Sal, whose music cow Has never had a lesson Still she's learned to sing off key Doing what comes naturally Doing what comes naturally You don't have to go to a private school Not to pick up a penny near a stubborn mule You don't have to have a professor's dome Not to go for the honey when the bee's at home That comes naturally That comes naturally My tiny baby brother Who's never read a book Knows one sex from the other All he had to do was look 
Grandpa Bill lives on the hill with someone he just married. There he is at 93, doing what comes naturally. Doing what comes naturally. Sister Lou ain't got a sou, although she goes out shopping. She gets all her stockings free, doing what comes naturally. Doing what comes naturally. Cousin Nell can't add or spell, but she left school with honors. She got every known degree for doing what comes naturally. Doing what comes naturally. You don't have to come from a great big town not to clean out a stable in an evening gown. You don't have to mix with the Vanderbilts not to take off your panties when you're wearing kilts. That comes naturally. That comes naturally. My mother's cousin Carrie won't ever change her name. She doesn't want to marry, and her children feel the same. Sister Rose has lots of bows, although we have no parlor. She does fine behind a tree, doing what comes naturally, doing what comes naturally. Merman had reached a level of professional success previously unknown on Broadway. The $28 a week stenographer was now commanding $4,700 a week, more than any other performer on the Great White Way. There is a reason some of the greatest composers in the history of musical theatre, Cole Porter, Irving Berlin, George Gershwin and Jules Stein, to name a few, entrusted Merman more than anyone else with some of their greatest work. They knew that she could belt out a song over an orchestra without amplification in large Broadway theatres, all the way to the upper reaches of the balcony. It has been joked that Merman could sing in the Grand Canyon and you would still be able to hear her. In addition to the size of her voice, composers and lyricists valued Merman's ability to deliver their music and words clearly and on pitch, eight times a week. She's the best, Irving Berlin said of her. You give her a bad song and she'll make it sound good. Give her a good song and she'll make it sound great. And you'd better write her a good lyric. The guy in the last row of the second balcony is going to hear every syllable. Tuscanini made a crack about you. Tuscanini went to see you, I think, at one of the... As in Anything Goes. Anything Goes. Mm. I imagine it might have been near the top you were singing or something. With Bill Gaxton. With Gaxton, mm-hmm. Victor Moore. Yes, yes, yeah. And he, he is reputed to have said, is it true, that uh, Merman has a voice like an instrument out of a band. Mm-hmm. For an instrument, he used the word band. Yeah, I've been, oh, I've been compared to a trumpet and everything, you know, very brassy. And um, I guess that's it. I don't know. It's, uh, uh, people say, what makes talent, what makes a star? It's a certain magic that is born in an individual. I don't think you acquire it. I think it's there. And yet when you rehearse, once you sign a contract, you rehearse. Oh. There is nothing. I, I, I live it. I just live it. I, I become a slave to it. Ethel Merman, in an interview with Stutz Terkel, recorded in 1961. Merman's was not a pretty voice, It lacked warmth and subtlety, and could at times be inelegant and harsh. But it was an invaluable voice 
to the development of the Broadway musical during the first half of the 20th century. In fact, many regard her as possibly the most important singer in the history of Broadway. Self-taught, Merman did not try to analyze her technique or style. When asked to explain her success, she said very simply, I just stand up and holler and hope my voice holds out. One of the first things George Gershwin told you was, don't never ever... take a singing lesson. And I never have. I've never gone near a singing teacher. Would have ruined you? I think so. I mean, uh, I breathe all right, so what do I, what do I want a singing teacher for? He told me, he said, you'll lose all your natural quality, all that naturalness that you have. It will go because you'll become uh, conscious and breathe the diaphragm. Up, 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 up. But um, I must be doing something right because Pavarotti said I was all right <laughs> with my uh, natural passaggio. You know, when you look I had up, to look that up, yeah. Did you ever find out what it meant? Yeah, sure. Well, I wanted to. <laughs> Apparently, see, I know nothing about singing or singing lessons. Uh, there are chest tones, there are throat tones, and there are head tones. Some people, apparently, when they go from the chest to the throat tone or from the throat to the head, there's a, it's like shifting gears. There's a, there's a noticeable change. But he said in his book that I go right up from the chest to the head without shifting gears. That's pretty good coming from Pavarotti, don't you think? I think it's very good. Merman there in conversation with Jean Shalit, recorded in 1983. Undoubtedly, Merman's voice, energy and undeniable talent made her a force of nature on stage. Though she was not a great actress, she was believable and consistent, and she knew how to land a laugh. She played to the audience, which meant that she became infamous for rarely looking fellow actors in the eye. Here now is Anything You Can Do from Annie Get Your Gun with music and lyrics by Irving Berlin. And now, little lady, if you'll kindly step up to the parapet, I'll give you a lesson in marksmanship. You couldn't give me a lesson in long-distance spitting. Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Anything you can be, I can be greater. Sooner or later, I'm greater than you. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I can shoot a partridge with a single cartridge. I can get a sparrow with a bow and arrow. I can live on bread and cheese. And only on that? Yes. So can a rat. Any note you can reach, I can go higher. I can sing anything higher than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. 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 No, you can't. Anything you can buy, I can buy cheaper. I can buy anything cheaper than you. Fifty cents. Forty cents. Thirty cents. Twenty cents. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. 
Anything you can say, I can say softer. I can say anything softer than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. I can drink my liquor faster than a flicker. I can do it quicker and get even sicker. I can open any safe. Without being caught? Sure. That's what I thought, you crook. Any note you can hold, I can hold longer. I can hold any note longer than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, no, I can. Yes, you can. Anything you can wear, I can wear better. In what you wear, I'd look better than you. In my coat. In your vest. In my shoes. In your hat. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Anything you can say, I can say faster. I can say anything faster than you. I can jump a hurdle. I can wear a girdle. I can knit a sweater. I can fill it better. I can do most anything. Can you bake a pie? No. Neither can I. Anything you can sing, I can sing sweeter. I can sing anything sweeter than you. No, you can. Yes, I can. No, you can. Oh, yes, I can. No, you can. Yes, I can. No, you can. Yes, I can. No, you can't, can't, can't. Yes, I can, can, can. Yes, I Merman came across as tough, outspoken and supremely self-confident. She was even seemingly immune to opening night jitters. Here is an extract from an interview with Studs Terkel, recorded in 1961. You yourself have never been scared on opening night, or no. is this just a myth? No, I have never, Studs, really. Never been scared on opening night. i tell you the reason why. Uh, we would go into a show, we rehearse day and night, like for four weeks, and we open out of town, and, and um, I know pretty much what I'm going to do. I'm pretty sure of myself. And I met, once made a statement, and it's been quoted, but I, I, I said it, and I'm glad, you know, one of those things, that um, I, I'm not scared because uh, the people sitting out front in the first four or five rows and look at me and say, you know, show me what you're going to do, how you can do it, how good you're going to be. I figure if they could do any better than I, I'd be where they are and they'd be where <laughs> I am. So uh, that's my thinking. Robert Rice, in the October 1950 issue of Flair, stated, Perhaps the quality that, more than all the others, has been responsible for Merman's steadily increasing renown is her utter conviction. Whatever her interior psychological workings may be, she is, as she faces her public and her friends, a person without qualms. She likes what she's doing, she knows how to do it well, and she doesn't want to do it any differently. No matter who Merman was with, her earthy, street-smart approach was the same. She was seemingly unintimidated by no one. When Call Me Madam was fast approaching its Broadway opening night, Merman, as usual, had let it be known even before rehearsals began that she would not allow any changes in her songs less than a week before opening night. A few days before the opening, however, 
Irving Berlin himself rushed up to her with changes in lyrics for The Hostess with The Mostess. According to reports, Merman bluntly turned down the multimillionaire songwriter saying, Call me Miss Bird's Eye. It's frozen, not a newcomer. When asked about her reputation for ruthlessness, Merman replied, I believe in asserting myself, but only for things that are important. Anybody who's worth her salt has to fight for her rights once in a while or get shoved around. But if her flamboyant, gum-chewing, gusto manner, supreme self-confidence and brash personality could put some people off, Merman also earned the respect of her colleagues as a consummate performer and professional who never lowered her standards. Her stamina and dedication were legendary. She was rarely sick, almost never missed a show, and in most cases stayed with a show throughout the course of its run. Here is an extract from an interview with Merman, conducted by Jean Shallot and recorded in 1983. When a show has been running for a long time, you put yourself on sort of automatic pilot when you're singing a song? Uh... Well, I do that. I do the same performance. I give the same performance um, every every performance. I mean, uh, Buddy De Silva, who produced uh, Panama Hattie, he was the one that the first one to star me in a show with my name over the title, and he produced uh, De Barry Was a Lady, which I did with Bert Law. And he said he made a, a quote once. Well, he said something which was made into a quote that watching. Merman on the stage is like watching a motion picture. She never varies. That's a great compliment for you. Yes, it was. Because uh, it, closing night, I would give the same performance as the opening night. And I couldn't stand it when people, I mean, featured players, lay down on the job, as they say. I had one gal whose name is going to go unmentioned. <laughs> and it was a matinee. And she was does a mumble voice like this. You know how they mumbled. And I, and I, my answer to her was dependent upon what she said to me. And if I couldn't hear her, I know they couldn't hear her out there. So I just said, I beg your pardon, what did you say? I had to, you know, but uh, that's it. You once told me that sometimes during a long run of a show, you so knew the songs by heart that you could think of other things while you were singing. Tell right. about that. Right. Uh, if I, uh, well, I mean, I put the same feeling into it, but my mind would say, now, uh, wait a minute, now, tomorrow I've got to, I've got to go down to Macy's. I've got to get so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. Gee, I need stamps from the post office or something. These things would run through my mind, but... For, and then Meanwhile, the, you're singing, everything's then, coming then, up roses. The next thing I knew, the song would be over. <laughs> That's an amazing ability to be able to do that. Yeah. And yet you never diminish the performance of the song no, while you do that. Never. I never let down. Never. No. In 1950, Merman teamed up once more with Irving Berlin for Call Me Madam, a musical comedy that spoofed Cold War politics by casting Merman as Sally Adams, a Washington socialite appointed U.S. ambassador to the fictional European principality of Lichtenberg. There she finds romance and set off a few political firestorms. Though Call Me Madam did not provide the same kind of long-running success as Annie Get Your Gun, 
the show chalked up a very respectable 644 performance run following its October 12, 1950 opening night. The ever-dependable Merman never missed a single one of those 644 performances, much to the dismay and frustration of her understudy, a young Elaine Stritch. One matinee day, I'm standing in the wings, and I'm watching Miss Merman, and she's on stage singing the money song to Paul Lucas, who played the uh, foreign minister in Lichtenburg. And through the lyrics of this song, she's offering the foreign minister of Lichtenburg, however much money his country wants from her country, on account of because she's in love with him. Money, 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 money. Can you use any money today? In the third aisle, on the aisle, in the third row, young guy suddenly yells out, you can throw some my way, sweetheart. I sure can goddamn well use a little bit of it. <laughs> Paying no attention, Miss Merman carries on. Money, 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 money. I've so much that I'm giving it away. Well, give some of it to me, Ethel, baby, for Christ's sake. The music keeps playing, Miss Berman keeps singing. Nobody's doing nothing. Where's the house manager? Where the hell is the house manager? <laughs> Ethel Merman plows on. <laughs> and if that fellow with whiskers ever should decline, who gives a shit about him? I don't give a shit about him. You can have my girl at the baby you lay it on me sweetie poops all of mine you can damn well bet ass on it ass too much too much she froze merman froze ethel merman froze i mean she froze you can She then proceeded to walk off the stage, sweep by me in the wings, down that little staircase that leads out to the front of the house, through those little velvet curtains, up the side aisle, down the center aisle, grabs a hold of this guy, yanks him out of his seat, drags him up the center aisle, through those glass doors that lead out into the lobby, and dumps the son of a bitch on West 45th Street. She's back in the theater. She's back in the theater. She's down the center aisle. She crosses the first row of seats to the left of the orchestra, through the same little velvet curtains, up the same little stairway that leads back to backstage. Sweeped by me again in the wings and onto the stage, dead center, mine! Elaine Stritch there in an extract from her legendary one-woman show, Elaine Stritch at Liberty, recorded in 2002. Incidentally, Stritch finally got her chance to play the role of Sally Adams when Call Me Madam toured, but not until after Merman had kicked off that tour by reopening Washington's historic National Theatre on May 5, 1952. Call Me Madam featured a charming score by Berlin, which included the wonderful You're Just in Love and Hostess with the Mostess. 
For once, Merman's performance was considered so irreplaceable that she got to repeat her role in the delightful 1953 film version. Here now is Hostess with the Mostess from Irving Berlin's Call Me Madam. I was born on a thousand acres of Oklahoma land. Nothing grew on the thousand acres, for it was gravel and sand. One day father started digging in a field, hoping to find some soil. He dug and he dug and what do you think? Oil, oil, oil. The money rolled in and I rolled out with a fortune pile so high. Washington was my destination. And now, who am I? I'm the chosen party giver for the White House clientele. And they know that I deliver what it takes to make them gel. And in Washington, I'm known by one and all. As the hostess with the mostess on the ball. They would go to Elza Maxwell when they had an axe to grind. They could always grind their axe well at the party she designed. Now the hatchet grinders all prefer to call on the hostess with the mostess on the ball. I've a great big bar and good caviar. Yes, the best that can be found. And a large amount in my bank account when election time comes round. If you're feeling presidential, you can make it. Yes, indeed. There are just three things essential. Let me tell you all you need is an ounce of wisdom and a pound of gold. And the hostess with the mostess on the ball. Entertaining vodka drinkers is a job they give to me. Making nice guys out of stinkers seems to be my cup of tea. What they really need behind the iron wall is the hostess with the mostest on the ball. There's a book of regulations as to who sits next to who. But there might be complications when the blue blood's not so blue. So the priestess with the leastest protocol is the hostess with the mostest on the ball. An ambassador has just reached the shore. He's a man of many loves. An important gent from the Orient to be handled with kid gloves. He can come and let his hair down. Ooh, have the best time of his life. Even bring his new affair down. Introduce her as his wife. But she mustn't leave her panties in the hall of the priestess with the leastess, nor the hostess with the mostess with the mostess on the ball. In 1953, Merman married Robert Six, then president of Continental Airlines. Hoping to give her children some semblance of a normal life, she announced her retirement and became a full-time Denver housewife. 
But this arrangement was not to last very long, and Merman soon returned to work. On June 15, 1953, the Ford Motor Company sponsored a two-hour television special to celebrate its 50th year of existence that was broadcast live on both CBS and NBC. Guests included Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby, Rudy Valley, and Eddie Fisher. But the highlight of the show was a medley performed by Ethel Merman and Mary Martin. The two were a study in contrasts. Merman a brassy belter, and Martin a warm, understated charmer. But they made a terrific team, beginning separately with signature songs for each. There's no business like show business for Merman and a wonderful guy for Martin. Then trading choruses or lines from a series of old Tin Pan Alley songs, followed by a series of I songs, leading into more signature songs, including You're Just in Love and I Get a Kick Out of You for Merman, and I'm Gonna Wash That Man Right Out of My Hair and My Heart Belongs to Daddy for Martin, and finishing with some old standards. Turkey that you know 
in May, a cliche coming true. I'm romantic and bright as a moon, happy night pouring light on the dew. I'm as corny as Kansas in August, high as a flag on the 4th of July. If you'll excuse an expression I use, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love with a wonderful guy. Hi, Ethel. Hiya, Mary. How about singing some old songs? I think that'd be fun. Good. By the light of the silvery moon. Thrill me at all. So tell me why. 
as a caddy But when I do, I don't follow through Cause my heart belongs to daddy If I invite a boy some night To dine on my fine linen paddy I just adore his asking for more But my heart belongs to daddy Yes, my heart belongs to daddy So I simply should be bad Yes, my heart belongs to daddy Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da So I want to warn you, daddy So I think you're perfectly swell That my heart belongs to daddy And my daddy, he treats it so
Ethel Merman and Mary Martin in their legendary medley performance from the Ford 50th anniversary television show recorded live on June 15, 1953. Hollywood cast Merman as the mother of a theatrical family in There's No Business Like Show Business from 1954, a lavish showcase for a trunkload of old Irving Berlin songs. Despite a stellar cast, including Marilyn Monroe, the film was a box office disappointment. Merman headed back to Broadway. Her much-heralded return vehicle was the less-than-thrilling Happy Hunting from 1956, a spoof of Grace Kelly's Monaco wedding that included the catchy Mutual Admiration Society. Unfortunately, her relationship with co-star Fernando Lamas turned so acrimonious that he tried to embarrass her during performances, including wiping his mouth after their onstage kisses while still in full view of the audience. Merman and the producers were appalled, and gossip columns fed the scandal. In a rare move, Actors' Equity, the Stage Actors' Union, sanctioned Lamas and his behavior improved. Happy Hunting ran on, and the two stars countered their onstage romance with unconcealed offstage hostility. Although many critics underestimated Merman's acting talents, she won universal praise as Rose Hovick, or rather Mama Rose, the ruthless stage mother in Gypsy, the 1959 musical based on the memoirs of striptease artist Gypsy Rose Lee. Gypsy featured a brilliant score with music by Jules Stein and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, along with a searing libretto by Arthur Lawrence. Merman's sizzling rendition of Everything's Coming Up Roses that we heard earlier in this program became the stuff of theatrical legend. You are doing the role now of Rose, the mother of mm-hmm. a gypsy, Gypsy Rose Lee. And it probably, here is an, a role in which you are it amounts to being a dramatic actress, really. For a time, you were Merman. You were the unique Merman in many things, till Annie, I believe. And Annie, you became that, Annie Oakley. Yeah, and, and, but it, we touched on a little dramatic yes. quality in Annie Get Your yeah. Gun. And, of course, this is, this is it, as far as I'm concerned. This is, I've always wanted to do something like this. Tell us about your approach to this role of Rose. Who is Rose to you? Mama Rose, yeah. well, see, I never had the, I didn't know Mama Rose in private life. Um, as a matter of fact, I didn't even get to know Gypsy until I started rehearsing for Gypsy. I'm talking about Gypsy Rose Lee. And I, her mother passed away in 1954, so I never did get to meet the real Mama Rose. But I know that I'm close to her in portraying this thing because every time Gypsy sees the show, comes to see Gypsy when she comes backstage to visit with me and the tears have been there I can see because she's been crying and she has said it to me herself that she sees mama up there behind the footlights when she sees me but this mama you play is a pretty rough figure yes but she also gets sympathy towards Mm -hmm. the end of the show I've been told that that she's I've said this before she Whatever she does, you know, that, that, that drive that she has, she's determined to make a star of June at first, and then, of course, June elopes, and then she eventually makes a star of, of, of Louise. But she, whatever she does, she believes in what she's doing. She doesn't realize that she's hurting anybody. 
It's just well, she gives up the she gives up the love of her life for her for the for the girl for well, Gypsy. Well, what's fascinating about this, you Ethel Merman and your portrayal of Rose, Gypsy's mother, is that here you never had a singing lesson in your life, and you're singing, and now you are acting. Mm-hmm. I mean, you are aside from so you are doing a straight dramatic That's acting right. job. That's right. Gypsy could be a play without music. You've never studied acting. Never in my life. Never been near a dramatic coach. Never. Merman there in conversation with Studs Terkel, recorded in 1961. Let's listen now to some people from Gypsy. Some people can get a thrill Knitting sweaters and sitting still That's okay for some people Who don't know they're alive Some people can thrive and bloom Living life in a living room That's perfect for some people Of one hundred and five But I at least gotta try When I think of all the sights that I gotta see Yet all the places I gotta play All the things that I gotta be Yet come on, Papa, what do you say? Some people can be content Playing bingo and paying rent That's for some people, for some humdrum people to be. But some people ain't me. I had a dream, a wonderful dream, Papa. All about June and the Orpheum circuit. Give me a chance and I know I can work it. I had a dream Just as real as can be, Papa There I was in Mr. Orpheum's office And he was saying to me Rose, get yourself some new orchestrations New routines and red velvet curtains Get a feathered hat for the baby Photographs in front of the theater Get an agent And in jig time you'll be being booked in a big time Oh, what a dream, a wonderful dream, Papa. And all that I need is 88 bucks, Papa. That's what he said, Papa. Only 88 bucks, Papa. You ain't getting 88 cents from me, Rose. Then I'll get it someplace else. But I'll get it and get my kids out. I had to go to all the lodges I had to play All the shriners I said hello to Hey L.A. I'm coming your way Some people sit on their butts Got the dream, yeah, but not the guts That's living for some people For some humdrum people, I suppose 
Despite her success in the role, Gypsy led to what were probably the two biggest disappointments of Merman's career. After the show opened, Merman Leroy, the Hollywood producer-director who was to direct the film version of Gypsy, saw the show many times, and Merman spent a good deal of time with him. She was convinced that Leroy would offer her the role of Mama Rose in the movie version. When she learned that the part was to be given to Rosalind Russell, she was furious. The score for Gypsy was written specifically for her. In fact, she was hired to do the show before composer Jules Stein or lyricist Stephen Sondheim were brought on board. She hand-picked them, and they wrote Gypsy with her in mind. Further disappointment came when the Tony Award for Leading Actress went to Mary Martin for The Sound of Music. Many speculate that Oscar Hammerstein II's death had made The Sound of Music a sentimental favorite with Tony voters, such that Gypsy's powerhouse book and score did not even receive the courtesy of nominations. Still, the role of Mama Rose in Gypsy remained her favorite part, Merman said years later, and also the most demanding. Of the climax of the show, Rose's Turn, a complex dramatic soliloquy, Merman stated, It was like an opera to sing, with tears, bumps and grinds, you name it. Here she is, boys! Here she is, world! Here's Rose! Why did it get me? 
scrapbooks full of me in the background. Give them love and what does it get you? What does it get you? One quick look as each of them leaves you. All your life and what does it get you? Thanks a lot. Out with the garbage. They take vows and you're batting zero. I had a dream. I dreamed it for you, June. It wasn't for me, Herbie. And if it wasn't for me, then where would you be, Miss Gypsy Rosalie? Well, someone tell me, when is it my turn? Don't I get a dream for myself? It's gonna be my turn Gangway world Get off of my runway Start now I Got a thousand This time boys I'm taking the vows And everything's Coming up rose Everything's Coming up roses Everything's Coming up roses This time for me For me Ethel Merman there in the Tour de Force Rose's turn from the original Broadway cast recording of Gypsy. Few would have believed that Mama Rose was the last stage role Merman would originate. But the demands of eight performances a week were becoming too much. She declined an offer to star in a new musical, Hello Dolly, written specifically for her voice in mind, saying that she was too tired to take on another show. She took on several film projects instead, including an acclaimed performance as the greedy Mrs. Marcus in director Stanley Kramer's It's a Mad, 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 Mad World in 1963, and gave a hilarious performance as a French whorehouse madam in director Norman Jewison's 1965 comedy The Art of Love. In 1960, Merman divorced her third husband, Robert Six, after concluding that he had married her for publicity purposes. While on the rebound, she was wooed by actor Ernest Bornin, the Oscar-winning star of Marty and the popular TV comedy McHale's Navy. Their 1964 marriage ended within days. Neither Merman nor Bornin ever explained to the public what drove them apart. She filed for divorce on the grounds of extreme cruelty. In Merman's autobiography, the marriage rated a special chapter, one blank page. She was so embittered by the experience that she never married again. In 1966, Merman agreed to star in a limited-run revival of Annie Get Your Gun. Broadway audiences greeted her like a long-lost friend, forcing her to encore Irving Berlin's old-fashioned wedding at every performance. And even though the critics applauded her still powerful voice, they questioned the wisdom of a 59-year-old playing a young, love-struck girl. Nevertheless, the run was extended, 
and the production was later restaged for network television. Personal tragedy, however, soon overshadowed this public triumph. In 1967, the suicide of Merman's daughter Ethel left the star inconsolable. Three years later, in 1970, Merman agreed to take over the lead in Jerry Herman's Hello Dolly for a limited three-month run. Her tumultuous opening night on March 30th, 1969, ended with a dozen curtain calls and loving reviews from the critics. Playing to sold-out houses, a gratified Merman ended up staying in the show for nine months, making Hello Dolly at that time the longest-running musical in Broadway history. Although Merman enjoyed the adulation, this production marked her last full-time run. Here she is in an interview with Jean Shalit from 1983. Do you ever leave a show before the end of the run? Never. Just because you got tired of it? Never. You don't sign these three-month contracts and out. No, no, no. Run of show. Annie Get Your Gun was、uh, three years. I played that, and、uh, Gypsy was.、Uh, Two years and then nine months on the road. That's where, when after I was, I was almost finished with the Gypsy tour. That's when I was approached to do Hello Dolly, and、uh, I didn't want to go into another show. I mean, two years and nine months is、uh, is a lot of work, you know. And then nine months traveling, living out of suitcases, and so forth and so on. So I turned down Dolly. It was written for you originally. It was written for me. Yes, it was written for me, and then. In 1970, David Merrick approached me and asked me, "Would I do three months of Dolly?" So I said, "Okay." So I did three months, and then at the end of three months, he twisted my arm and he said, "Look, if you play it another six months, at that time," he said, "we will be the longest-running musical on Broadway." So I played it till a few days before Christmas, 1970. So I always say I didn't open Dolly, but I closed Dolly. They also put back a song in Dolly that had been taken out <coughs> until you got there. No, no, no. He wrote he wrote two songs, he, which I put in when I did Dolly, which had never been in the show.、Yes, Love, look in my window, and uh, and uh, uh, world take me back. When you went into Dolly, yes, you added songs that had not previously been in Dolly. That is right. Jerry Herman gave me. Uh, two new songs for Hello Dolly, which he had written、uh, for me if I had done it originally. Yeah, but no Dolly before me ever sang those songs. No. Let's listen now to a rare recording of Ethel Merman singing "World Take Me Back" from Hello Dolly, recorded in 1970. I've sliced my slice of life a little thin. Haven't I, Ephraim? I've been on the outside looking in. Haven't I, Ephraim? Well, from now on, Ephraim, all that's gonna change. The world is full of wonderful things, a bushel of wonderful things for me to believe in. Wasted so 
God is, it's time to get even. So world, take me back. I want to let laughter light up my face again. Oh, no more peeking through the keyhole. I intend to have my own knows when my step has a spring and a drive I'm suddenly young and alive you wonderful world take me back again the world is full of April's and June's red roses and yellow balloons for me to hang on to so world take me back again whatever happened to those wonderful sights those dancing the night away nights oh where have they gone to so world take me back i wanna be there when the gas lights blaze again oh no from the sidelines I intend to star in the show no more reaching for tomorrow from now on I stand with today in my hand for today the world is ripe as a peach it's gonna be mine till I reach a hundred and ten my step has a spring and a drive. I'm suddenly young and alive. You wonderful world, take me back. Oh, yeah. During the 1970s, Merman remained active in nightclubs, film, and television. She provided the voice for the evil witch Mombi in the 1971 animated feature Journey Back to Oz and fictional gossip columnist Hedda Parsons in the ill-conceived 1976 comedy Ron Ton Ton. Proving her sense of humor, she spoofed herself in the 1980 feature film Airplane, playing a deranged hospital patient who thinks he's Ethel Merman. On television, she played a singing missionary in Tarzan, was the comic criminal Lola Lasagna on Batman, portrayed herself on The Lucy Show and That Girl, and appeared several times on the popular Love Boat series, including an all-star episode with Anne Miller, Carol Channing and Della Reese. Merman's candid opinions furthermore made her an ongoing favorite on national and local talk shows, and she made a memorable guest appearance on The Muppet Show, singing show tunes with Kermit, and joined former co-star Bob Hope to perform It's De Lovely on a Cole Porter tribute.
Never one to shrink from challenges, Merman continued singing. A successful solo appearance with the Boston Pops in 1975 led to a series of acclaimed concert appearances. Her 1977 reunion concert with Mary Martin proved to be one of the standout theatrical events of the decade, and she even turned out a disco album of her classic showstoppers. Though it went on to become a camp classic, and despite a pronounced vibrato that marked her singing in later years, Merman's fans were delighted to hear her voice ring out over the driving dance beat. In 1982, Merman performed at Carnegie Hall as part of a benefit for the Museum of the City of New York's theatre collection. She held forth for an hour in top form, belting out hit after hit with a power that belied her 74 years. She made one of her last recorded appearances at a PBS benefit, stopping the all-star show with Everything's Coming Up Roses and They Say It's Wonderful. The video of that evening shows her offering the same no-nonsense, plant-both-feet-and-sing delivery she always had, and both songs are greeted with rapturous applause from the audience, not out of sympathy, but in a genuine response to her still-thrilling presence. Suppose you were interviewing Ethel Merman. Suppose you were a young reporter and you had your big break and you were going to meet Ethel Merman. You had to think up some questions to ask her. Yeah. What would you ask Ethel Merman? When are you going to give up? <laughs> what would when are you going to throw in the sponge? And what would Ethel Merman answer? I'm not going to do it until, uh, I don't know, as long as I can keep going. And, and uh, I don't work that hard. You know, I do my concerts. I do my TV. Gopher's mother on Love Boat. And uh, uh, it's easy. It's nice. You know, concerts come... Like, they come maybe three in a week or something, where you go, like, I was in Florida a couple of weeks ago. We had three in a row. And I was in San Jose, California, two weeks before that. And uh, uh, it's easy. It's, you know, I say I could phone it in. In other words, I, uh... Ethel Merman, Ethel Merman is not retiring, never has been, no. and never will. Well, uh, people, sometimes, they're, they're, they're very nice. They say, oh, please, don't ever give up. We always enjoy hearing you, wherever I go. That's what I hear, which is very flattering. Ethel Merman there in an interview with Jean Shalit from 1983. In 1982, Merman appeared on Mary Martin's PBS talk show, Over Easy where they joined forces to sing Anything You Can Do from Annie Get Your Gun. Almost 30 years after their historic duet on the Ford show, the pair once again caused a sensation, and they were invited to repeat the number as part of a tribute to Irving Berlin at the upcoming Academy Awards, an exciting prospect that unfortunately was not meant to be. In April of 1983, Merman was at home in her Upper East Side apartment in New York when a sudden flash of pain left her incoherent and unable to walk. Thinking it was a stroke, doctors soon discovered the cause to be an inoperable brain tumour. An inevitable decline forced her to remain in seclusion, and towards the end she was unable to speak or even to recognise herself on television. 
Here is an extract from an interview with Merman's longtime friends, Tony Contro and Jim Russo, conducted by Michael Riedel and recorded in 2012. And then she had the uh, she had a, a stroke. How did she How did she die? No, she had a brain tumor, right. a glioblastoma, but it struck just, just suddenly. like that. Yeah. Can, do just you mind like describing that, that uh, incident? Uh, well, she um, she was getting re- the car was waiting for her downstairs to go to uh, take her to the airport because she was going to sing an Irving Berlin medley on the uh, Oscars right. on the Academy Awards show, and. She called me and she said, um, "Well, I'm I'm going. I'm uh, cars downstairs. I'm going to uh, going to Beverly Hills Hotel, and I'll call you when I get there. Then I'm going to Mary's, Mary Martin's. She was going to stay with Mary Martin for a few days, and uh, you know, I'm, I, you know, we'll be in touch. Bye." But what she did was, in the last year, she had been screwing up words. And then she'd say, oh, I'm all right. And then she'd say it correctly. This time on the phone, she screwed up a word. She said, oh, I'm all right. And she screwed it up again. Mm. And it just kind of, yeah. I, just, I just felt uncomfortable. And uh, the next thing she did, she went to the mirror uh, to put on her lipstick before going downstairs. And it just struck a seizure. The, the, the tumor just went that little bit too far into her brain. I don't know how that works. And she went to the phone. All she could do was holler because she couldn't speak. Mm. And she had to crawl to the door to, to, to unlock it so that, you know, because they knew in the hotel that where it came from, that it was her. And uh, I got a call from her lawyer at 7 in the morning the next morning saying that Ethel had had a stroke. She was in the hospital. And then a few minutes later, I got a call from a nurse, and Ethel had some, brought her, her, her telephone book with her. <laughs> I made sure through all of this, she had to tell her, and she kept pointing to my name. And she wanted the nurse to call me so that when I didn't hear from her that day, I wouldn't be worried. Right. She was still thinking of me. Mm. And... Um, then she she couldn't speak. I didn't know that then, and we went uh, we went to the hospital and not to be able to communicate. Someone who was such a communicator, yeah. it was the greatest voice of all time. Really, yeah. yes. But she yes. was she was a communicator in so many ways. She she was on the phone five ten times a day. She'd write postcards from if she went to New Jersey. She'd write a postcard. <laughs> no, you've so got she, postcards yeah, from we, every, everywhere from she everywhere. went. She send you a so, oh boys. <laughs> so she was just in general a, a great communicator. Did she and to have this happen of yeah. all? Was things. she ever able to speak uh, again before? She well, went? they gave her a lot of prednisone and that um, and some radiation, but they knew that it was only a matter of giving her a little more time. Yeah. And she, when she couldn't speak, she was in the hospital. And we had a, she, when she was a little girl, uh, little Ethel Agnes Zimmerman, she was billed as that in the, for, when she'd sing for the troops in the First World War. Right. And Mr. Zimmerman, her father, would play the piano and little, she'd sing, uh, well, there were two songs she did. There's one I would kill to hear 
It's called When Maggie Dooley Did the Hooley Hooley. <laughs> now, if you ever find we that song, that. Michael or Susan, I want to I want to be the first one to hear it. When Maggie Dooley Did, did the, the Hooley Hooley, Hooley. Hooley. Sung by Ethel Zimmerman. Yeah. Little Ethel Zimmerman. Little Ethel Zimmerman. Right. And the other song that she would do is She's Me Pal, yeah. which she'd do, uh, sing to her mother in the front row. And, of course, a lot of those soldiers were wiping a tear away at that. But when she was, she couldn't speak, and we had, Jimmy had a little needlepoint needlepoint pillow pillow made that that said, said, she's me pal. So we went to the hospital, and she started to cry. And she put the pillow up to her cheek, and she started to sing. Mm -hmm. And she sang that song Perfectly. Really. And that was probably the last performance Ethel Merman ever gave. Mm. Cared for by her devoted son, Bobby, Merman died on February 15th, 1984. In her second autobiography, published in 1978, Merman wrote, I don't want to sound pretentious, but in a funny way I feel I'm the last of a kind. I don't mean that there aren't some girls out there somewhere who are just as talented as I was. But even if they are, where will they find shows like Girl Crazy, Anything Goes, Annie Get Your Gun, Call Me Madam and Gypsy? They just don't produce shows like that anymore. In so many ways, Merman was right. She burst onto the scene at just the right time, providing one of the brightest talents to emerge during the golden age of the American musical theatre. Belting out her songs with Mary Abandon, she helped electrify the Broadway musical, and although she often insisted that her success was a matter of luck, her talent remains the stuff of legend. Those who laugh at Merman's outsized personality and all-out performance style do not understand her real value as an artist. When the theatre had no sound amplification, here was a star who could sell a song all the way up to the second balcony and win laughs to boot. As one writer noted, there has never been anyone else quite like her, and doubtless never will be again. Ethel Merman was irreplaceable. As epitaphs go, who could ask for anything more? Well, that's it for this edition of Great Interpreters Goes Broadway. But you can join me again next Friday at 8pm here on Fine Music Radio for a look at the life and career of Mary Martin. A reminder to you that tonight's broadcast is available to stream and listen to from my website on and off the record www.onandofftherecord.com That's www.onandofftherecord.com And as I mentioned at the beginning of tonight's program, Unfortunately, I'm not in the studio to receive your phone calls, but if you'd like to get in touch, you can do so via email at adrian at onandofftherecord.com or via the Facebook On and Off the Record group page. Playing us out tonight is Ethel Merman singing You're the Top from Cole Porter's Anything Goes. From me, Adrian Fuchs, have a wonderful weekend. Till next Friday at 8pm here on Fine Music Radio. Good night.
poetic, I'm so pathetic that I always have found it best. Instead of getting them off my chest to let them rest unexpressed. I hate parading my serenading for I'll probably miss a bar. But if this ditty is not so pretty, at least it'll tell you how great you are. You're the top. You're Mahatma Gandhi. You're the top. You're Napoleon Brandy. You're the purple light of a summer night in Spain. You're the National Gallery. You're Garbo Salary. You're Telephane. You're sublime. You're a turkey dinner. You're the time of the Derby winner. I'm a toy balloon that's faded soon to pop. But a baby on the bottom, you're the top. Baby, I'm the bottom, you're the top. 